In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the origins of human civilization with Dr. Rita Louise. One of the things we learned from the Babylonian priest Barosis was that a group of half man, half fish, or these guys that had these fish suits on, came out of the Erythrean Sea and educated humanity six different times. And what's interesting is if you look at time before the flood and then after the flood, we find these blips of there's not a whole lot going on and then boom, there's the creative explosion. Then there's boom, the rise of agriculture and domestication of animals. And then boom, the rise of civilization. And it kind of comes out of nowhere. This podcast is supported by Paranormal Contractors. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, you need Paranormal Contractors. Call 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. 
Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Dr. Rita Louise is standing by to discuss human evolution, the origin of civilizations, and what makes us human. And Christian D. Cadieux, the real John Constantine of Paranormal Contractors, will be here for our regularly scheduled Friday segment. In her new book, Stepping Out of Eden, Dr. Rita Louise takes the concept of human origin to a whole new level. In its exploration of this ancient mystery, it delves into our foundational beliefs, thoughts, actions, and deeds. It asks the question, why do humans act human? What caused us to transition from ape to man? Did we evolve, as contemporary science says, or did a group of extraterrestrial visitors mold us into what we are today? Does our genetic makeup determine our humanity? Is it our biological differences, our lack of body hair, the size of our brains, opposable thumbs, or our ability to walk upright? While countless hours are spent investigating our biology, little time is invested in figuring out why we do things we do, think the way we think, and experience the world in the way we have. Best-selling author Dr. Rita Louise is the host of Just Energy Radio and the founder of the Institute of Applied Energetics. She's also the producer of the video's Icon, Deconstructing the Archetypes of the Ancients, The Truth About the Nephilim, and Deceit, Lies, and Deception, The Reptilian Agenda. Dr. Rita has appeared on radio and television and has spoken at conferences covering topics such as health and healing, ghosts, intuition, ancient mysteries, and the paranormal. Her latest book is Stepping Out of Eden. Dr. Rita Louise, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. And the new book is Stepping Out of Eden. Intriguing title. And I'm thinking of Joni Mitchell, uh, that song Woodstock, recorded by Crosby, Stills and Nash. But she's talking about getting back to the garden. We've got to get back to the garden. You want to step out of Eden. Explain. Well, I don't want to step out of Eden, but I the book looks at what happens to us as we step out of Eden. And so it looks at our, I'm going to say, evolutionary path as we moved from being uh, an animal, from being for, uh, originally created, and then the things that occur to us as we move from being, you know, a hominid into a fully sentient being with rules and laws and culture and all the things that we experience in modern society today. Do you think that in today's society, we look at the creation story, the Christian creation story, the Judeo-Christian creation story, and other creation stories, do we now ignore those at our peril? I definitely think so. Um, You know, this is... (laughs) I, I don't know who this is, and I would love to find a name. So if anyone knows who this person is, I would love to know who it is. You know, but somebody somewhere in the Western world, 
um, I would say in you know more recent times, has turned around and said that our mythic records, the story that talk about our creation and the stories of the gods when they walk off the earth, um, that they're, they're fairy tales or they're stories to identify our place in the world or their archetypes of different energies and expressions of human emotion on the planet. And they took all of the history and factual information that was in there and said, it's not true. It's not possible. How could they have these amazing chariots that would fly through the air or these weapons that could smote their enemies in level mountains? But when we look at it today, I mean, 150 years ago, maybe. But when we look at these stories today and we hear about this technology they had and the, the things that they did, it's very easy for us to imagine us doing the same things we have airplanes we have laser weapons you know we have star trek i mean come on um and so i think that we have been brainwashed into thinking that our mythic history is fallacious versus saying well what if it's true what if the stories from old are true and what do they say about us and our history and so this book as well as the one my last book uh, et chronicles what myth and legends have to say about human origins really address that question is what does myth have to say and then what do we get from that when when you compare creation myths whether we're talking about the the Judeo-Christian, or the the Sumerian, or the Babylonian, or the you know the indigenous um, uh, nations around the world. What what jumps out at you and strikes you as like, wow, that's kind of intriguing. I never noticed that before. Well, and I think this is something that most people haven't noticed because they haven't really taken the time to sit down and look at a large body of information. So. My perspective is, I, you know, if everybody's talking about it around the world, then there must be some level of truth to it, you know, because there are bits of information that are extremely consistent, regardless of the culture you're talking about. And so those are the pieces of narrative that I lean them most heavily on. For example, um, the concept of a golden age or the thought of the sun, moon and stars being placed in the stuck in the sky. It's a very consistent mythic narrative. Uh, the story of the Noah's Ark story, extremely consistent narrative, the story of uh, the gods giving us fire. And so if you take these little, you know, concepts of the golden age and you start looking through cultures, myth where they're talking about this golden age and what they're doing before the advent of the golden age and what they're doing after the advent of the golden age, you find out that the stories are extremely consistent, including the Bible, which I think was one of the things that I found the most fascinating because when I was writing originally, I took the Bible and I put it on a shelf because I didn't want to write a book proving the Bible or disproving the Bible. I figured, well, just put it over there and see what myth has to say. And when I had uh, amassed all this information and started writing and, you know, it, it was like, I felt like I was at a, 
a, a slot machine and taking these stories and they were rolling around in my head trying to get like 777 to line up. But what I found was that the biblical stories fit in a very consistent way and pattern with the stories that we find uh, in cultures around the world up to the flood. And then all bets are off after the flood. But that's consistent around the world as well. Interesting. What about the actual, the, the moment of creation, uh, the creation of, of mankind? Uh, similarities there. Uh, talk to me about, you know, the, one of the common threads I've noticed, uh, just in a very cursory glance, uh, overview of history, is uh, when we're talking about the creation of mankind, um, words like mud and and um, clay and and uh, crucibles and and being molded and things like this, is is that as widespread as I, I think it is on, 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 uh, upon reflection? Very much so. There are two major narratives, even though in some cultures you find them both together within the same myth. Uh, some cultures you just find one piece, other cultures you'll find the other piece. But the concept of the mud and the molding and and for shaping and forming humanity is one major narrative you find. The other major narrative is this concept of genetic material being used, whether it is the bone or blood of a god or a bone and blood of a giant, or as in the biblical case, Eve is created from the rib of Adam. And so we, you know, we find this genetic piece tied to it as well. Right, right. And so what is what is the takeaway from that? The this narrative of genetic manipulation. What what is the takeaway as far as you're concerned? I mean, the takeaway that I have is that humanity was genetically engineered to be in the form and function in the way that we do. You know, that very specific gene enhancements were done and were encouraged to spread throughout the population. One of the it doesn't seem yeah. random. Right. It doesn't seem random. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things is we have these, we have these genes that are, have been dormant in mankind, uh, you know, going back from when, we, I guess, for millions of years. Uh, and I think these are genes that have to do with language. And then exactly. all of a sudden, after tens of millions of years, there's a change, uh, like out of the blue. Talk to me about that. Yeah, and I think what you're talking to, and I don't have my notes in front of me, is the the FOXP2 gene, which is associated with language. And from what I remember, um, every living thing has a FOXP2 gene. And in most animals, it sat dormant for about seven million years. And then with the advent of um, Homo erectus and in between there and the advent of early modern humans and Neanderthals, it underwent a change. And then it underwent a second change, which, you know, one of it changed the, uh, some structures in our body. You know, so, the, you know, we have these very specific genes that were changed, but then there were also physiological things 
that changed like the structure of our mouth and the formation of the hyoid bone that made it easier for us to be able to communicate. And where scientists get really confused is if you're looking at a series of genetic mutations, you know, they can extrapolate how long it's going to take for a mutation to occur and then for another mutation to happen. And they can't figure out how and why these changes have occurred really in rapid fire, one after the other. And they don't understand. No, and they have they have no. Uh, although, I mean, just because we don't understand doesn't mean it's either this or that. But it does seem, True. in many respects, that evolution has sort of hit a dead end. Well, I mean, there really haven't been any. The last genetic change that there has been evidence of was. Um, I think it was to the AISM gene. Don't ask me what that is. Um, and they're not really sure what the gene controls because it is a recent recent addition to the human lineup. And that came in ooh, about 5,000 years ago. You know, so it seems as we would take these major advancements, there would be some genetic shift that happened. You know, so is it the chicken or the egg? You know, did... You know, we make these genetic changes and then society advanced, you know, and culture advanced or did society advance and now it put pressure on the system to create this change. I mean, because theory of evolution suggests that, you know, there is pressure on the organism which forces it to change. And we don't really know which came first, the chicken or the egg. Although what makes more sense to me if you sit there and pay attention to what the mythic record suggests, is that there was intervention. And if you um, look at other areas, one of the areas that I have spent time uh, focusing on is the development of domesticated plants and domesticated animals, and it becomes much more blatant in those areas than it does in human lineage because the time is a lot more stretched out versus when you look at the things that we use, plants, animals, you know, to, you know, which supports the development of society, um, the changes are much more blatant. Um, sure, for example, sure. for example, um, you know, because if I get into the whole agriculture thing, it's kind of a long, long drawn out process. But let me just talk about domesticated animals because this is really fascinating but and short. And so around 8500 BC, we find some of the very first domesticated animals, except the dog. The dog was domesticated much earlier than that, and they're not quite sure how far back in time that goes. They suggest maybe 14,000 BC. So between 8500 BC and 2500 BC, every single domesticated animal that we find on the planet was domesticated. And between 4,500 BC, so we're talking right at the advent of civilization, as we know it, you know, the Sumerians and the early Egyptians, mm -hmm. and 3,500 BC, it, it brought in domesticated horses, domesticated uh, camel, and domesticated llamas. And so we have pack animals going into cultures around the world 
right in this 1,000-year strip at the advent of modern, quote-unquote, society. So do you want to make a guess how many animals have been domesticated since that point in time? Very few, I'm guessing. None. <laughs> none. 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 Wow. You know, so with all of our advancing technology, and we supposedly knew how to do this, you know, we've done it for 5,000 years. You would think, you know, we'd have more domesticated animals, but we don't. And maybe we don't because we weren't the ones that domesticated them. He's the real John Constantine, Christian Decadure from Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. And it's Friday, that means he's here. Christian, how are you? Hi, Richard. I'm doing great. We've been talking over the uh, the weeks and months that you've been here joining us on Conspiracy Unlimited about telltale signs you may have paranormal activity in your home. We've talked about electronics malfunctioning. We've talked about dogs and cats and other pets behaving in a very strange, unsettled manner. We've also talked about certain odors like sulfur. What is another example of a telltale sign one might have unwanted paranormal activity? Puberty. Puberty? Did you say pu puberty? What is That's that? Right. What does that have to do with paranormal activity? Well, believe it or not, I'm here to tell you and anyone who's listening that you should certainly pay very strong attention if you have children and they are currently females, especially. I'm not saying it's strictly female, but it just so happens that it's more predominant in females but puberty pubescent females are a subject of paranormal activity and i'm not talking richard just strictly about entities and ghosts and anomalies i'm talking about some pretty dark and dangerous stuff I, i'm not trying to push the whole the exorcism of emily rose kind of thing but that's based on a true story and there is truth to that and I'm here to tell you that from my experience, I have seen a tremendous amount of unexplained paranormal variables that are present in pubescent females, whether that is demonic possession, uh, things that cannot be answered from items that might levitate or things in the home that would happen, electronics as well, or you know, from the pubescent female or male for that matter, from them just acting completely out of norm. But I mean, again, it is pubescent and there is a chemical change. So it's not to say just because you see that your pubescent child is acting a little strangely, it's not a reason to go and take holy water and throw it on them and start saying the power of Christ compels you. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a uh, you have to factor in every variable, as I always tell you. I'm the first to dismiss it. However, if your child is experiencing vivid dreams, uh, having trouble sleeping, if they're getting nauseous all of a sudden, and headaches, and if they cannot focus, uh, and they're having extremely uh, violent tendencies, then this is something that should also be taken into consideration. 
All right, well, as any parent can attest, living with a pubescent teen is always rather frightening, but we're talking about something even more frightening, and we're talking about paranormal activity and entities attaching themselves to a pubescent or prepubescent child. All right, leave us with a 1-866 number. Our toll-free number is 1-866-724-0800, or you can reach us at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com or even at crimescenecleaners.ca. They call him the real John Constantine, Christian Yikadur of Paranormal Contractors, a division of Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Dr. Rita Louise, author of Stepping Out of Eden, is here. I want to talk about what makes us human uh, because it's becoming less and less obvious these days. In fact, I'm trying to remember who it was who said not too long ago that perhaps this generation, this new cohort, if you will, may be the last fully human generation. Fully human. And I mean, there's a whole area of discussion there about the transhumanist movement and so forth, but that gets us back to, you know, genetic manipulation and so forth. But let's talk about what makes us what truly makes us human and okay. what is it in your mind that, that makes us, is it, you know, the, the, uh, the ability to create, to make art? Is it the ability to, to contemplate our own mortality? What is it? And the position that I took in doing this work was, and I'm sorry, I'm a bit of a Trekkie. So I use a lot of Star Trek references, but I think people, you know, know Star Trek. You know, but Klingons act Klingon, you know, and, and if they're in battle, it's a good day to die. And that's just their mentality, you know, and they're Klingon and Vulcans act Vulcan and the Ferengi act Ferengi. And when they look at humanity, they look at us and they're like, you're human, you know. And so my question was, what is it that we as a species all share. And so there are a number of things that, you know, we all share a very similar, uh, or at least at one point in time, uh, moral compass. You know, we all, every person on this planet kind of goes by the Ten Commandments, for lack of a better way to say that, um, as far as morality. Um, and so then I questioned, well, where did that come from? Because if we, if we are the ones making up these rules to follow, you know, then why wouldn't people that were indigenous to Africa act African versus people who were from China act Chinese with very different moral principles and very different moral compasses? Um, you know, and, and that's not what we find. We find a, a very strong, consistent uh, morality. For example, 
um, the concept of marriage. Okay, the concept of marriage, according to the Arunta tribe in uh, Australia, it was one of the very earliest laws that were was given to the people. And the concepts tied to marriage are very consistent. And so if you're married and you have an extramarital affair, they can kill you. I mean, and so, you know, or in some cultures, they'll chop your nose off. But there's a very consistent, if you do this, this is the penalty, you know, and there is this hard-pressed importance tied to the concept of marriage. I mean, again, we're talking in antiquity. Today, it's kind of like all bets are off on a lot of this stuff. And, um, you know, but why get married? You know, who came up with that idea in the first place? You know, and I have put out in the book my theory as to why the marriage law was put into effect in the first place. Um, but there's just consistency. It's like the mythic record. There is consistency of the behaviors we have, the laws that we have that control and uh, that control people around the world. I mean, the level of programming that humans have is very consistent. And I'm using that word very specifically, programming right. that we have. Well, it's 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 very powerful. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the idea of this is the course, this is the natural course of events that you, you go to school, you graduate, you get a job, you get married, you have children, you, and you, you uh, perpetuate uh, the species. Um, so where did that come from in your estimation? I mean, my belief is that, well, and what myth suggests is that, you know, the gods taught us everything. I mean, everything. You know, they taught us how to dig up roots from the ground. They taught us what plants were edible versus what ones weren't edible and what ones were good for medicine. They taught us about the movement of the sun, moon, and stars through the sky. You know, they taught us about metallurgy. They taught us about our history. And so, and they also gave us our laws. You know, so, I mean, it's very easy for us to think of God giving Moses the law, but Though that series of law is actually much more ancient than Moses. And um, it is believed that these social constraints have been put on humanity, but, you know, in order to control us. And they go back so far in time that we don't even know where they started because it is just so ingrained in our culture. Did they, did they also teach us how to dispose of our dead? They're um, not as much about how to dispose of the dead, but they offered a lot of precautions of if you were around a dead body or if you handled a dead body, now you were unpure and you needed to go through a series of purifications to make it so that you could go and integrate with society again. Interesting. I, I, I was just referring to the whole, the, the process, the idea of burying the dead and praying for the dead and ushering them into, helping them to, 
to make it into the uh, you know the, the 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 afterlife and so forth. Where did that come from? Well, you know, and that part I think is really interesting. Um, so one of the things that I uncovered regarding that concept was it seems that there was, and I'm going to say a lot of superstition, although I don't know that that's totally the right word, but there was a lot of fear about spirits in antiquity, you know, that you would have these miscellaneous ghosts floating around tormenting you. And so ritual, so the burial experience, um, let me phrase this differently. It was very important to make sure that the person who died had a good funeral so that they would be able to move into the afterworld correctly. So, for example, the Tibetan Book of the Dead suggests to you that, you know, if the person is getting ready to die, that you start communicating with them. And, you know, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing it in my own way and saying, you know, like, when you die, go into the light. And then after they pass, you're supposed to kind of sit with the body and suggest to them, you know, like, and don't forget to go into the light. Um, because they were very afraid that if the person didn't transition and move to the other side completely, that they would come back and torment them. So it seems like burial rituals and saying the prayer over the dead was more about our fear of them coming back because they didn't pass into the light versus our saying goodbye and I miss you and we had a good life together. I mean, it's just a very different kind of twist on a custom that we've been programmed like, well, this is what you do. But it seems like the real intention of the custom and the ritual was something very different. Which which branch of the the human tree buried their dead first. I, I I thought it was the Neanderthals, but I may be wrong. Well, I mean, there's the Neanderthals is the earliest burial uh, that they have found as far as that they can prove. And it was outside of the Shinar Cave, and that was at about 90,000 90, years ago. However, there is, and I'm trying to find the name because there is a Homo Natali. Uh, that was found in Africa. And so in this cave um, in Africa by Johannesburg, they actually found like the remains of 15 individuals in this one cave that they have determined through process of elimination that these bodies were intentionally brought into this cave system and left. And so they weren't brought in by animals. They weren't brought in by you know, water, washing the, the bones from like the beginning of the cave into this deeper chamber of the cave, but that they were intentionally brought by people to have this be at uh, their resting place. And so it makes me wonder, was this a ritual burial? And was this, a, you know, very early? Um, and this was 330,000 years ago that these uh, bones have been dated to, which makes me go, well, was there a belief in spirits that could come back and haunt you if you didn't have a good burial? And was that belief already within our consciousness 330,000 years ago? Right, right. And 
and the ritual, one would presume, had to be based on some experience. If we don't do this, this will happen. Why? Well, because it's happened before. Or we were told, or we observed it with the gods doing it. I mean, there's a little, you know, we have certain amounts of disconnects and have to make a certain amount of uh, suppositions because it seems based on the mythic record that we didn't really figure a whole lot out and we were told to do things, you know, and we were just emulating what we have seen. And so it just makes me wonder if at some point, point in our far distant past, if this wasn't done by, and I, I'm going to put it in quotes, the gods, and we are just emulating what they were doing. And so if, if the gods told us that we ought to do this, bury the dead, um, it was because if we don't, what, we will be haunted by our ancestors? I don't, I don't know. I don't really have an answer for that. You know, I know that that was what came out of more recent society, um, you know, but where the concept of ghosts came from in the first place and how they made the connection between the dead and them coming back as ghosts, you know, but I'm going to kind of add in another little twist. You know, one of the things that was very important in ancient cultures was the ritual experience, you know, and so when many of us think of, you know, a ritual in like Native American populations, you know, we might think of F Troop, you know, and the Hawakee Indians, you know, like going around the fire, you know, banging on the drums, you know, and, and we look at it and go, what's that about? And, um. But the reality is, is that they would do these rituals and with the goal of making them themselves, raising themselves into an ecstatic state, not just the people that were doing the singing, but it would be part of this whole community creating kind of like a, a group trance space so that uh, certain individuals that were, I'm going to say, more open to it could go into an ecstatic state and communicate with the gods. And so like Graham Hancock, which I'm sure all of your listeners know oh, who yes. that is, yes. you know, spent time doing alawaska in order to achieve that ecstatic, ecstatic state. So there are some cultures that use very heavy ritual, dancing, singing, fasting, you know, ritual purification in order to achieve that state. There are other cultures that relied heavily on uh, ethnogenic drugs, you know, like alawaska or mushrooms to help them achieve that state. Or it might be a combination of ritual and fasting and cleansing to get you to that state, you know, and, and that was the point of all of these rituals. And so they might have received that communication from, you know, I, I'm going to say the gods from ancestral spirits, from, you know, whoever it is they're communicating with while they're in this uh, enhanced state um, and bringing back information to the physical world. Or is it possible we're just wired that way? I mean, I'm thinking about um, um, DMT, which is, is produced in the brain. 
and 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 you know whether we can achieve these states you know without taking some concoction mixture of plants and tree bark and so forth uh whether this ability is just innate i mean i think it is innate um but i also believe that in antiquity there was a lot more emphasis on uh that connection you know so i think that people were much more in tune with the world around them they were much more in tune with their energy um, and understood how to work with the forces, and I'm going to say of nature, you know, and of energy and energy medicine, um, which in the Western world, you know, we just sit there and look at, you know, people that uh, are into that kind of thing, you know, and it's kind of, it's changing, but you know, we look at them like they're crazy. Well, what do you mean you're going to do energy medicine? What does that mean? You know, um, but I think that in antiquity, you know, and we're really kind of talking really far back, unless you're talking about in indigenous cultures, you know, where maybe their most advanced piece of technology is a bow and arrow, um, that we've really stepped away from that connection. You know, and we chose a path path of being much more material in our interaction with the world around us. And so today we are so isolated from that feeling that, um, you know, and my personal feeling is, is that hallucinogenics were introduced as people's connection started to wane and started to be more challenging for them to have naturally, you know, because they started to lose the tools that they had. Right. And right. so they put that in to allow them to continue. I, it reminds me, I, because I was at a, um, I was at a new age expo or something and I kept insisting to people that I'm the least intuitive person I know. And I keep, kept saying things like, well, your pineal gland is calcifying. So maybe that's what they, maybe that's what's happening. Our, our pineal glands are calcifying. So now we need um, more sort of artificial, not artificial, they're, they're found in nature, but, but we need these concoctions in order to uh, uh, achieve the same thing, which as you say, was once innate in all of us. Mm -hmm. So that the age of miracles has truly passed. Is that what we're saying? I mean, I'm not saying that because I think miracles still happen. You know, I've experienced, you know, I do, uh, I mean, I'm a medical intuitive, that's my day job, and do energy medicine with clients. And I mean, I've had miracles happen with my clients. And so I think that it's there, but I think it's really our attitude toward the whole topic, you know, and we're more concerned with getting the newest iPhone than we are in looking at ourselves and looking inside and getting rid of our internal clutter and being one with ourselves. It's true. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, I think, said about technology and, and particularly satellite technology, how it is pulling us out of our bodies and the use of drugs and alcohol and even violence to a certain extent is an attempt to get back into our bodies. What do you think of that? I, I will agree. You know. I wrote an article about Schumann resonances and without going into a whole lot of detail, it's like the earth vibrates at 7.84 megahertz. 
something like that, mm-hmm. eight two megahertz, and um, and when we have a lot of EMF activity, cell phone activity, that kind of thing, wire wireless technology, it changes that vibration, and so when we are in that vibration of the universe it's it's healing to the body and we're able to connect with ourselves but with all of this other frequency happening around us it's like we're not really able to connect with it or it distorts us on the inside you know and so i think you know and i think everyone's heard of you know like well you know i i feel grounded or you know that was pretty grounding and um, I think it really interferes with our ability to ground and connect to the earth, you know, and when we can't ground and connect to the earth, then all of our junk, our personal junk, emotional stuff gets stuck within us. And I think that's where some of the crazy is coming from, you know, the anger and hostility and not really being able to go inside and say, well, does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> what we we are a civilization now almost totally devoid of ritual uh which is yes. you know key to your to your book and so what happens to a species i mean what happened to you know there was there was a certain coming of age when you would you might take a a young male into the woods and he had to survive for 72 hours with his wits or if or if not he perished and when he came back from the woods he was a man now uh, you get in the latest iteration of uh, Xbox or something. I mean, there, there is no ritual. So, what does that, what does that mean for our future? I'm not really sure. You know, because I think we are really kind of on a precipice of moving into, you know, what you were talking about. You know, starting to implant electronics into ourselves so that we can better cope with what's going on. I mean, you know, the use of drugs and alcohol, I think, is on the rise to help people navigate the world. Um, You know, and so, you know, we always have a choice. And sometimes the choice, we don't really want to take the choice that on some levels we know is really better for us because it's harder. You know, and we have to give things up and we maybe have to sacrifice a little bit. Well, for, for those who subscribe to the, the you know, the ancient alien um, model and, and, and that sort of creation uh, narrative, uh, one has to wonder then, well, when, if and when they come back, they're going to, you know, they're going to think, my God, what did you do while we were away? Look at this mess. I mean, are, are they coming back and are they going to, you know, once again, kickstart our, our evolutionary path? I think the bigger question is, is did they ever leave? That's the bigger question. When we look at um, the evolution, and I am going to say of education slash society, we find very cyclical periods in time. And so one of the things we learned from um, the Babylonian priest Barosis was that um, a group of half man, half fish, or these guys that had these fish suits on came out of the Erythrean Sea and educated humanity six different times. And what's interesting is if you look at time before quote unquote the flood and then after quote unquote the flood 
we find these blips of there's not a whole lot going on and then boom, there's the creative explosion, you know, and then there's boom, the rise of agriculture and domestication of animals and then boom, the rise of civilization and it kind of comes out of nowhere. And so, and we find the similar things happening before the flood period. You know, there are those that suggest that uh, UFOs that actually crash land were not accidents, you know, but were left here intentionally. And those have actually been the kickstart to the next level of education and development of humanity. You know, so if microchips and Velcro and all of that came from the crash at Roswell or some of the other crashes that happened in the 40s because technology really did take a huge growth step forward after that point in time. Sure, we went to tubes to transistors virtually overnight. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and so did we figure that out or did we get that from somewhere and we just reverse engineered it because we're smart enough to figure that part out. Anything I haven't asked you about that you think is important uh, as we uh, wind this up? You know, I just think that um, people should really look at, you know, what's going on around them and the level that they are kind of caught into this web of uh, programming, you know, and where, who we would be and what we would be if we stepped out of that paradigm and tried to figure out actually who we really were. Dr. Rita Louise, thank you so much for spending some time with me. The book again is Stepping Out of Eden. How do we get a hold of the book? So, um, I would like to suggest that if you go to my webpage, soulhealer.com, S-O-U-L-H-E-A-L-E-R.com, soulhealer.com, and purchase it from there. Now, it is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all of those places, but if you buy it from me, it comes automatically autographed, which is priceless. Absolutely. Well, that's the play then. That's the way to do it. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for this. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Great interview. All right, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, why not consider becoming a supporter? Go to patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show and check out our three support tiers, The Truth Seeker Tier, the Whistleblower Tier, and the Star Chamber Tier. Donors can receive access to an exclusive monthly Google Hangout on air or a monthly live chat with me. You can also be eligible for a monthly draw and a chance to win Conspiracy Show and Conspiracy Unlimited merch. Patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show. Your support is greatly appreciated. Next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, the Illuminati in Hollywood. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. 
Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.